Welcome back to another episode of the Inside Japan podcast. I'm Charlie, and as always, this episode is sponsored by jobsinjapan.com, which is the best place on the internet to find your next job in Japan. Today, I'm talking with Ruth Marie Jarmin, who is the CEO of Jarmin International KK and the only Western woman in Japan to have the Taken real estate license. Hi, Ruthie. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So you took the Taken real estate license and you're the one of the first foreigners to pass this test and the only foreign woman to have passed this test. Is that right? Well, the only uh, international uh, Western woman. So yeah. I have a friend who's from India and she's got it. She got okay. it after me. Uh, but it's very interesting that out of the, I think probably about 10 Westerners have it. Wow. And out of those 10, at least four or five came from the same company I was in called Space Design, which no longer ex exists. It's been bought out. I think they changed the name, but um, okay. a real estate company that I helped sort of launch from 2000, year 2000. Um, and the owner of that company was my mentor from Recruit Days. I used to work at Recruit oh, I uh, see. when I first came to Japan. And Ezoya-san, who built the company Recruit, was my mentor for about 20 something years wow. ever since I came to Japan. So he wanted to do this um, service department business uh, where we have an English hotline and all that. And I was sort of top salesperson there and it, it's a long story, mm -hmm. but he really basically said, Ruthie, if you want to move up in this company, you have to have the Taken license. If you're doing real estate in Japan, you need to have a real estate uh, license in Japan. And I was like, but it's in Japanese and it's really hard Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> but at the company, it was a rule that you had to take it every year. Right. So the first year, I basically got maybe two questions right. It's like a 50, it's a total of maybe 60 or 70 questions. That's sort of getting getting vague because it's been a while. Um, and you have, uh, it's total 50 questions. And I probably got like six right the first time. It was more like understanding what the test was. It's a test once every year. And then the next year I tried to study better and I got a little bit better. I think I got 17 correct out of 50. Um, and then the next year I got really serious. Like I really want to pass this now. And I just studied. And one of my friends, this lady who had lived in the States for a long time, she's Japanese. She basically said, just think about like, memorizing the textbook like i mean that's the that's the level to which uh people go here when they study wow and so i studied really hard and i ended up not passing by one point uh on my oh, fourth wow. time and then on my fifth time i got it wow so, i mean it definitely worked but uh it was a huge challenge but um now that since we're talking a little bit about learning japanese i really think that studying as you do something like study shouldn't be the goal it should be the method for which you are reaching some other goal right so your goal was to get this test and so the study actually had an end goal a purpose to it and and yeah i can totally understand that because i i had the same issue when i was learning japanese i was just studying to study but i didn't feel yeah. um any like real connection to it uh, at the time when i was living out in the countryside um and it was only when i started using it for my work that i found it much more useful much more interesting well basically in japan if you speak and read i i would like to emphasize read if you speak and read japanese basically 
the opportunities here are endless. Mm. But, you know, um, a lot of people kind of give up at the reading part and they, they do the speaking okay. Um, and then what happens is when that person actually starts working with a Japanese company and they've said, oh, I speak Japanese. Like, let's say you started a, a company and you had Japanese clients, right? When you start interacting with them in a business setting, if you don't know how to read Japanese, it's just so much of a problem for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of their documents will be in Japanese. Their emails will want to be in Japanese because that's their mother tongue, right? right. So if you're trying to uh, get them to be your customer, the least you can do is sort of, you know, understand the language. So I feel like even every single person listening to this podcast, what you could think of in your head when you're learning Japanese is, I'm learning this Japanese today so I can speak to someone tomorrow. I'm learning this Japanese today so I can do a business meeting two years from now. So it's not to learn Japanese or remember how many kanji you know. It's more like to use it as a method for growing your business or gaining huge success in Japan. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Okay, so now that you have the Taken license and you know, understand a little bit more about real estate, I want to pick your brain about how to avoid some of the things that a lot of foreigners fall foul of in Japan. So when yeah. I first moved to Tokyo, um, as we were talking about before the podcast started, I moved into an apartment that somehow managed. I managed to get three months of free rent and the realtor waived his fee. Um, and there's, there were a whole bunch of reasons I was hypothesizing about like, why, why would they give up? So, because basically we were just trying to negotiate hardball with them because, um, we wanted to move in quickly, right? We wanted to get a place in the next, like maybe two weeks. I think I, I gotten a job in Tokyo in, in June and it was mid May. And I was like, I need to move there now. So that all the places we were looking for is like, we want to move in fast. So, um, so how, what are some things that foreigners can do, especially in places like Tokyo, where it's really expensive to save on things like uh, moving in fees or rent or things like that? Well, I mean, you just sort of imagine the um, landlord or the owner's point of view. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that just know the market, right? Like what do Japanese people like when they're renting an apartment? Okay. Japanese people, when they rent an apartment, usually want it to be within 10 minutes walk of the nearest station. Okay. They usually want it to be on a higher floor and they usually want to have an elevator. And oftentimes they would want to have a parking space. Okay. So those four things. So let's pretend you wanted to get a good deal and you wanted to find something unique. Forget about those four things. Tell your agent that you're perfectly fine if it's far from the station because you're going to ride your bicycle anyway. Um, You don't care if it's on the first floor. You don't need a parking space. And um, what was the elevator? You don't need an elevator. Elevator. And you don't really care because if you're on the first floor, you do not need an elevator. So the hardest apartments for landlords and owners to fill are ones that don't have a a parking space, are far from the station, are. And you had mentioned that your apartment that you got for a really good deal was not like in the center of Tokyo. No, no, it's a little bit further out, but it was, it was reasonably well connected. It was a few minutes walk from the station and that station went all the way to, uh, directly into, uh, Seibu Shinjuku. So, um, it wasn't, it it was a little bit inconvenient. Like it took about 20 minutes to get to, um, Takarono Baba, which is on the Yamanote line. So it was kind of, yeah. It's really clear because you just, it doesn't have to be all four of those points. If you can cover one of those points, you usually have some type of negotiating power. Mm. So... I think in your case, you had mentioned that yours had like a concierge that would receive your packages for you. 
Right. And you also said that your management fee, the monthly management fee was like 21,000 yen. Right. Okay. For a typical Japanese person who's going to pay something like Juma yen a month, like 100,000 yen per month, a management fee of 21,000 yen is very expensive. So even if somebody's going to pay, let's say, 150,000 yen a month, Still 21,000 yen per month. That's separate from your utilities, right? Your utilities were separate or... I think it included some of them. I think it had... um, I think there was like Wi-Fi included in the building and things like that. There were a few other things too, but But yeah. But electricity wouldn't have been included, No, no. It wouldn't include electricity and gas. Yeah. So a lot of... So you can imagine like a local person. What would a local person think? What would an international person think, right? Right. So a local person who speaks perfect Japanese would be like, I don't need anyone to accept my packages for me. I'm fine. I can do it myself. Mm-hmm. And um, you don't need to charge me this month much per month for these services because I would rather have a lower monthly rate, right? So somebody who's in the 100,000 to maybe 200,000 yen range in Japan uh, would probably want not need that concierge. They don't want that. Right. And they would rather have a lower management fee. So... Um, that would make it difficult for that landlord to find someone to rent that apartment. I see. And it's not it's not like in Azabujuban, it's not in one of these posh areas. So if you're not in a posh area and it's a pretty large apartment and you have a concierge, that's going to make it hard to find a Japanese renter. Mm. When you're talking to your agent, so a specific advice that I would give is a lot of people get into the trap of looking online and since a lot of us do read Japanese and understand Japanese, uh, people will look for apartments just meant for the Japanese public. And that's when you get into the whole, no, no, we don't want Gaikokujin. I don't speak English. No, thank you. Right? So what I recommend is going to an agent that's used to working with Gaikokujin. So um, like if you look at their website and you see that they have English on their website, that would be a good hint that maybe they are have had international clients in the past. So they would know which um, of their clients would say no to, you know, internationals or whatever. So Mm -hmm. choosing your agent is really important. And then understanding what Japanese people like and then maybe giving in on one or two of those points will give you um, a lot of negotiating power, I think. Right. Yeah, because I definitely I had a lot of problems with that when I first when I was moving my first apartment in Nagoya, where I was I would go and see this like beautiful apartment. I'd be like, yeah, I'm ready. Like, let's do this. And then they'd just be like, no foreigners, no foreigners. Like, and um, I think I, I have a different perspective on this. And I think a lot of foreigners have a lot of foreigners get really upset by this. And they think, you know, it's like discrimination, it's racism. And, and the way I see it is, I think from their perspective, if you're a landlord, like one of the biggest problems I think with um, foreigners coming uh, to live in Japan is that a lot of them will just bail on whatever they're doing and go back home randomly. And it's really hard to, like there's no recourse for you know landlords who had trouble. Um, I remember hearing from um, the, so the, the landlord that I was with, the first place I lived in Tokyo, the next, our next door neighbors, um, I think they used to cook like really, um, with a lot of oil. And um, I remember that there was a construction team in there after they left because they had to replace the whole kitchen area because the, yeah. the um, I think it was a, a South Asian family. Yeah. And uh-huh. they had, they destroyed the kitchen basically. Like it, the, yeah. there was so much oil, like it, you couldn't get it off the surfaces and they had to replace the whole kitchen unit. And I think they uh-huh. just left town. And, and so I can totally understand from a, a real estate, like a real, 
uh, a landlord's point of view, that would be really frustrating. And you just think, okay, I don't want to have to deal with any of that. I'm, you know, I, I don't want to be racist. I don't want to be disc discriminatory, but it would just be so much easier for me as a landlord to have, you know, a, a Japanese family that I know they're going to be respectful in a certain way um, about the, the house and the space that they live in. So I can totally understand that. But um, at the same time, I did find it, like you said, a lot easier when I had a Japanese uh, realtor for the place I currently live in. He was yeah. really helpful. He was super helpful. And he even prepared me for um, the this place. They asked to do a Japanese language test. Oh, which is actually quite uncommon. Yeah. So the land, yeah. the landlord actually called me and it was an old, <laughs> it was a really old guy. And so he had that one of the, one of those kind of like a little bit mumbly sort of, uh, Oyaji Japanese. Yeah, hard to understand. Yeah. Very difficult to understand, but I think he, I, I could understand him for the most part and we could talk in Japanese. So he was like, oh yeah, he's fine. Like he can speak, <laughs> he can speak Japanese. Um, so that was okay. But that was the first I'd heard of that. Have you ever heard of people having like Japanese tests before for those things? Well, that's interesting because um, that gets on to my next point where if you get a good real estate agent, they will advocate for you. Mm. So I have a feeling that the, the Japanese test that you took was something that might have been suggested by your agent mm. because the, the Japanese landlord might have said, oh, but I don't speak English and I don't know uh, like that. Right. And then your agent is like, nah, he's a really good guy. Um, his Japanese is very good. And, you know, you could even give him a call to see if he, if your Japanese could communicate to him and if he could communicate it to you, I would definitely suggest that. So I think that uh, having a good real estate agent is also having a good advocate for you because too many of our fellow internationals, exactly as you said, have bailed, you know, and Japanese people bail, but they don't leave the country. So if you look at the end of your contract on your lease, It'll always say, even if it's a translation into English, that this contract um, comes under Japanese law, right? There are very few countries in the world that would, let's say, uh, out of the blue, a Japanese you know, legal representative contacted a lawyer in America to ch go after you after you've bailed and not paid six months of rent. It would be very unusual for you to get any kind of penalty in the U.S., for outstanding rent in Japan. So the risk to these landlords, it is real. And I mean, this uh, segues a, a pretty well into a business conversation as well. Um, a lot of Japanese businesses as well, the reason why they don't want to work with an international or the reason why they hesitate is because they're just worried that people are just going to leave all of a sudden. Like in the middle of a project, they'll just say, oh, I can't do this anymore. I have to go back to my aging mother, you know, mine is in Hawaii. And um, I'm sorry, sorry. And you know, the sense of feeling of responsibility towards seeing things to the end, I would say the majority of Japanese people, not everyone, but the majority have like a common sense of the kind of responsibility you must uphold to see something through to the end of end if you've committed to it. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of us internationals, um, we have a different sense of priority. Obviously, family is first, you know, something else might be first, our health might be first. So we're, we're a little bit more flexible in, okay, yeah, this job is really important, but my mother's health is more important. So I'm going, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that those kind of things have happened extremely often. 
So when one of us, like you or I, or somebody listening to this podcast comes up to against sort of hesitancy towards, oh, what, an international to live in this place? Or wait a minute, hmm, do you have anybody else Japanese on your staff that we could deal with? I know that that happens a lot. I'm a CEO. I have my own company here and it's been going for nine years. But very clearly, even if I speak Japanese, the, the client will feel much more comfortable if I have a Japanese person sitting next to me at the meeting. So, you know, there's this sense of like comfort that needs to happen. And I think the real estate agent can be a very good advocate for you. So in, no one should complain to their agent. They should see their agent as their ally, you know, who's mm. really trying to make this happen. That's interesting that you say that because I've heard um, conflicting stuff from other friends of mine who've worked in real estate that sometimes the real estate agent doesn't want to get on the bad side of the landlords because they have to deal with the landlords every day. They have to deal with the landlords for the next client and the client after that. And so sometimes they will... Uh, and this is what happens when, I don't know if you have had this experience, but I've had this multiple times where I've gone into, like I've looked on like homes.jp or something like that to find apartments in the area. I've uh, found one of the realtors that's representing that apartment on that site. And then I've gone into the place and they will show me like some of the worst apartments I've ever seen in my life. Just while I'm sitting, I'm like, I'm looking for an apartment like this in this area with these kind of amenities. And they'll show me stuff that doesn't even look a little bit like that, but it's because they're trying to help out the landlords because those are really like the people that they care about the most. They want to keep them happy because they're the ones that they have to work with the most. So is that something that you've seen or is it, does it really depend on the realtor? I think it really depends on the person. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really careful about which kind of agent you choose. So when you look at the website, first of all, and it's in English, um, let's say the website is in English, the one with all the listings, right? You already can tell that they're going for an exclusive audience. Okay. Uh, you can already tell that they've probably whittled down their listings to only listings that would accept an international person. And if you're not somebody who's going to pay 2 million yen a month, they're going to try to fill up the ones that they haven't been able to fill up, you know, with you. <laughs> and so uh, I feel like at the beginning, when you're sort of shopping for a good agent, you should definitely use recommendations by friends. Um, you know, like really do the research on which agent would be good. The one that I think is great that I got my place in Kamakura with is um, Coco House. And Coco House has um, pretty much everything in Japanese, but they do have some stuff in English. And it was just a very personable kind of website, I thought. And it showed the different staff. And it was located in the area that I wanted to be in. It's not one of these big agencies. Um, and that worked really, really well. But mm -hmm. even then, there was one... Um, booking that I'm really glad I ended up not getting, but that I was interested in. And they were sort of like, no, it's okay. You know, and we don't, we're not sure because also Kamakura has a lot of international residents that, you know, suddenly the project ends and they leave and there's really no recourse for the owners. So we have to be a little bit sympathetic to them. Hi everyone, I hope you're enjoying the conversation and I just want to take a quick moment to mention that this podcast is only possible because of the support of JobsInJapan.com. So next time you're looking for a job, check out JobsInJapan.com. There are tons of jobs on there, not only in English teaching, but also software engineering, hospitality, marketing and consulting, among many others. Most of the jobs on the board do not require any specific level of Japanese and you can get started in minutes. So next time you're looking for a job, check out JobsInJapan.com and let's get back to the conversation. I do 
think we also have to um, be willing to compromise a little bit. Like that's one of the things that I learned quite, I've moved maybe like five or six times in Japan. I've been here nearly 10 years now. And um, one of the things a friend told me that I uh, totally recognize as true now is that there are really like three things that you need to keep in mind when you're looking for a place. Um, it's time, money, and location. And you can have two, you can't have all three. So if you want something in the perfect location for the right price, you have to be willing to wait. You can't get it super fast. Um, if you you know want something that's super cheap um, and uh, maybe you want something like super fast, then you won't be able to get the right location. You won't be able to get like exactly where you want to be. Um, right. And and I find like that that has really helped me when I was looking for a place because I was like, okay, I need to move fast. So. Um, which one do I want? Do I want something cheap or do I want something uh, in the right location? And for me, it was really right. important to be in the right location. Like I'm very, I'm just right. in West Tokyo here, like a little bit, um, just a little bit West of Shibuya. So I think I'm about 15 minutes by train from Shibuya. And so I can go anywhere. Like once you get into Shibuya, you can go anywhere in Tokyo, like no problem, right. it's super easy. And I thought I want to be in the center. I want to be where things are happening. So I'm paying a lot more for my apartment. Like I have a small, like 1K apartment yeah. and um, I wanted to have, um, that connection to Tokyo so that I could go anywhere I wanted. That's much more important to me than having a, a super fancy place to live. Yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, you bring up a really good point to make sure to voice that to your agent because your agent needs to do the negotiations with all the owners. So the agent would love it if he could say, or she could say, oh, and this person is willing to move in in the next two weeks. Mm -hmm. So if there's any, like in my case, in my place in Kamakura, it had been empty for six months. So they were just really excited to hear that I was willing to move in right away because they've been losing rent for six months, right? Mm -hmm. So like if you're if you're willing to move in quickly, you should definitely tell them. If you're um, willing to like, I don't know, sign an extra document or something, that, that's also something good that they can use to negotiate for. Mm -hmm. And um, the other thing is that a, a really good thing about renting in Japan is that you can never get kicked out. Yeah, I think it is very, um, very strong uh, protections for the tenant. It's pretty impossible. It's pretty <laughs> impossible. So that's another reason why landlords are so careful about um, making sure that this person is good and they can trust them. Because, okay, let's say you told me earlier that your former apartment was on a five-year lease, which is called a teishaku. So it's like a set term, right? Mm -hmm. If you had stayed in there, after the deadline, they still would, it would take them uh, like a year or two years to kick you out. Wow. Why because, is that? Is it just because it's so strong protections for tenants or, or what? Yeah, because the civil law, the MIMPO in Japan, which is the civil law, the civil code, supersedes the real estate law. So um, after the war, I mean, this is really interesting. I learned it all like as I was doing it. Um, after the war, a lot of landlords took advantage of the renters and pr they raised prices, um, you know, which shouldn't be raised. And it was really, really hard and kicking people out. So uh, after the war, they instituted this very, very strict real estate um, legal system. So that's why it's so hard to get the real estate license in Japan. I mean, it's expensive. It's difficult. And they're really careful about who can be an agent. Um and then the only way to control owners and to make sure that they do the right thing is to have the civil code more important than the real estate. So it doesn't matter if you own a house. It doesn't matter if you're the landowner. You cannot kick the tenants off without very clear reason. 
So um, we had a Keishaku, so like a, a fixed lease on the land in the house that I lived in in Yokohama, but the house itself we owned. So there was a there was an owner of the land, and we owned the house on top of it. Okay, so civil code in Japan means that if the twenty five year twenty five year lease on the land finishes, but the house is still standing and we're living in the house, we can stay there legally. Wow. They can't kick us off if the if the house is no longer standing, like if it's broken or if there's some really clear reason, danger to the tenant or something, then they can get us out. But it, is that um, where things like um, key money came from? Because I heard that key money was something that came around after World War Two as well. That was a way for um, landlords to get a little bit of extra money out of people who were moving, so that they would have money to either refurbish old apartments or, or rebuild or create new apartments. Is that how that works or is that? Um, that's a really good theory. I'm not exactly sure about that, but I feel like Kimani and Koshinryo and Hoshokin, so the renewal fee that you have to pay after your two years or to renew, yeah. and then the um, security deposit that you have to put down, you know, that those are legal protections that the, the landlord can ask for. And I feel like exactly like what you said. If you put down three months security deposit, that's basically letting the landlord have three months of security if you run away and he has to, you know, fix the kitchen or something like that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I see it as kind of like a, yeah, a security for them. Even the, the key money, the key money also shows commitment, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I like this apartment so much that I'm willing to pay extra money like as a gift to you to say thank you for this. Right. Um, and I've heard some, some stories from uh, friends of mine who they said, if you are look like a lot of foreigners will look for a place that say like no reikin, right? Like um, I, I used to live in a UR apartment, which is a government run um, yeah, thing yeah. in Nagoya. And they had no, <laughs> they had like those, those, uh, those things like no reikin month or something like that. And it was just like, uh, I, I, I definitely didn't want to pay it. But the apartments that have no reikin, you find that there are either things missing or things haven't been taken care of properly. Yeah. And that exactly. really, really bugged me. I ended up having to buy two air conditioning units in the apartment because the the there was no key money and they were just like, yeah, you can have the apartment. And they weren't really very upfront about um, there not being air conditioning in any of the rooms, which oh in my gosh. Japan is 100% necessary. So it ended up costing me a lot more money than one month of key money would have been because I had to go out and find air conditioning units, secondhand air conditioning units, and then like pay someone like, you know, Niman yen, 20,000 yen to come in and, and install them. It was a real pain. And then I had to get rid of them afterwards. And basically you have to give them away. No one will pay you anything for air conditioning units unless they're like one year old, like uh, brand new models. Right. Like if it's an old model, they'll just be like, yeah, we'll, we'll take it away from you for free. And I'm like, this thing was expensive. And they're like, yeah, what are you going to do? Leave it in the apartment, you'll get fined. <laughs> kind of like old cars. No one yeah. will buy old car here. But, um, you know, you raise an extremely important point, okay? So remember earlier I said know your market? So know what Japanese people do when they rent apartments. Figure that out first, okay? So if most people in Japan are willing to pay that reikin, reikin basically means thank you money. It's rei, mm -hmm. ore, you know, rei o suru. Um, thank you money. So if most Japanese people are willing to pay that thank you money, Think about why, because Japanese people are not dumb. 
There's got to be a reason. And if most Japanese people are willing to pay that three-month security deposit, why? Why do you think? You know, like, what could it be? So if the majority of people are doing it and you're in a country that you're not used to, um, I would suggest probably really looking into why that's happening and trying not to get, not trying not to cut corners right at the beginning. Because um, one of the things about a place where it doesn't require aching or doesn't require like um, six month notice for cancellation or something like that. Um, basically all the Japanese people living there are also gonna be people who don't wanna pay daking and who want flexibility on their lease. Why? Why would these very much minority Japanese, minority of the Japanese people want an apartment with no daking? Probably because they're afraid they might damage the house or they have three or four big dogs or <laughs> all these big reasons. So I had a couple of friends living in UR housing and uh, basically the people like right next to them had three huge long haired dogs. And every time they opened the door, the wind would bring in all the dog hair and the oh daughter has allergy to dogs and stuff. But there's no recourse, you know, there's no like, there's nobody who's going to help you with that. Because first of all, with you are, you don't have an agent to go back to. You don't really have like a help desk that's really invested in trying to help you, right? Whereas if you're doing the same thing most Japanese people do, which is a little bit more expensive and a little bit of a pain, it takes more time. Um, you also have the safety net of your agent you can talk to, the owner you can talk to, your neighbors are going to be good. Your neighbors in your apartment where you're living right now have pretty much done the same thing you did in order to get into that building. They've all signed the same contract. So you can rest assured that there is no Boryokudan, there's no Yakuza related parties in your building because everybody signed off that no. So um, it's just, there's this sense of security when you do it the normal way. All of us, at least from America, where I'm from, we like to buck the system and we like to figure out the shortcuts and we like to, um, do things like in a smart way where we don't have to do some rule. But I find that in Japan, it's sometimes it's really, really smart to abide by the rules because there's gotta be a reason why that rule exists. Right. And trying to buck that trend probably gets you in more trouble than you realize, especially <laughs> early on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I definitely noticed that too. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about um, Japanese language learning because you've learned Japanese to a, to a very high level, like being able to pass the Taken real estate license. Like, like you said, this is an incredibly difficult test to pass. So what are some of the, the ways that you studied that actually helped you to do something really specific like that? Because I found that a lot of people, um, myself included, really study very generally. Like I learned most of my Japanese from, you know, living with a Japanese woman, um, my, my ex-girlfriend, and we lived together for a few years. And so we were speaking kind of like a mix of English and Japanese all the time. And my Japanese got to a pretty decent level to the point where I could be translating for people. I did a little bit of translation and, and interpreting work at one of my schools. And um, yeah, I, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> but I, uh, my Japanese isn't as good now as it was then. I haven't really been studying that much recently. But that's, that's one of the things like, if you are using it a lot, you can learn. But like you said, you'll end up being able to speak. And then if you want to do business, you want to get into like, uh, you know, open up windows and doors for yourself in this country, then you really need to be able to read and understand as well. So what are some ways you can go about doing that, that actually uh, get results quickly? Well, um, one word of wisdom, I guess, advice would be 
um, everybody really needs to learn correct Japanese. So I, I'm sorry to say this, I don't want to be sexist or anything, but particularly the men who have lived with Japanese women will often speak Japanese in a way that other Japanese men are not used to. It sounds to them like a, like a feminine style of speaking. And that can really hurt you in the business environment. Absolutely. So, I, I, I noticed that as well. I also taught in kindergartens for several years. And so yeah. not only was I getting like women Japanese back home, but I was also getting kids Japanese at the school. So uh, my, my Japanese, it took a little while for me to actually pick up more masculine ways of speaking Japanese by deliberately hanging out with more uh, Japanese guys. Okay. And so that's one. And then the other one is there, it's really, really important to learn um, proper Japanese kegel, right? Like the correct way to write and, and say um, polite Japanese. And I'm, I'm pretty much assuming that everybody listening to this podcast is interested in business in one way or another. Maybe they're working, maybe they're teaching, whatever. And when you're interacting with a Japanese person, if you can speak politely, you, that will get you so many points, you know, if you can do that. And it's not really that hard. So don't think of Sonkeigo as like this big barrier. It's, it's ba basically a method of making communication with Japanese people. So um, for me, every day, even now, um, one of the things that I have a lot of trouble with and anxiety about is when I have to read Japanese out loud. Like I have to read it and read it out loud. And on some of the TV shows I'm on, uh, we have this thing called a, a kampe, which is sort of like a, a paper next to the camera that you read as oh, you're looking at Oh, a teleprompter. And not really, a it's a paper in Japan. It's old school. It's like written in kanji. <laughs> that makes it even more difficult because it's some, the assistant director has written it in kanji, you know? Like handwritten, you mean? Handwritten. Oh my goodness. So they hold it by the, the camera and you have to read it and sound like you're saying it, you know? So no matter how many times I practice, sometimes you have to look down and I do a lot of speeches too. So sometimes you have to look down at what you've written and you got to catch it right away. And then you want to say it in the right way. I don't like to read my speeches, but I realized that speaking proper Japanese, uh, even like, let's say somebody suddenly said, Ruth, could you read this part of the book? That would make me so nervous to read something in Japanese out loud. Mm. So in order to overcome that, what I do every morning is um, I happen to read the Bible every morning anyway. So I read um, the English Bible, the section I'm going to read, and then I read Japanese Bible out loud. Wow. So it doesn't matter, you know, whatever religion you are, whatever kind of um, readings you like to do. Find something where you have it in your mother tongue as well as the same thing in Japanese and maybe two books. And so for the Japanese one, I actually use my voice and I read out loud. And I do that every morning for a chapter of Japanese. You could do it with a newspaper if you wanted to. And the reason why I'm saying it needs to be something you're um, used to in the other language is because you want to be familiar with the content. So the more familiar you are with the content, the more you will learn to use the words that you're reading. So if you're reading the Nikkei Shinbun about the recent uh, terror attack in Afghanistan, okay, and you've already read it in English, and now you're reading it in the Nikkei Shinbun, reading it out loud, you'll learn how to pronounce Afghanistan in Japanese. You'll learn how to, you know, do they say terroristo? Do they say gerida? Like what, what word do they use to describe that? 
So if you're reading in Japanese out loud something you're familiar with, that will also help with your vocabulary. It'll also help with your pronunciation. It'll also help you learn how to structure the sentences correctly. And um, yeah, reading out loud, I say hands down is the best thing you can do. Wow. And I, I wonder as well, because a lot of the things like the, the shimbun and things that different people read, um, I, yeah. I often find like the, the way that they write in those things is very different. So there was a, I, I, at one point I was studying a lot using um, sort of short sentences and I think it's called chunking where you get like, instead of just uh, learning word by word and like grammar point by grammar point, you learn like a small chunk of something like a, a whole sentence and then you say it back, it back in Japanese. And uh, yeah. when I was doing that, I often used a dictionary to try and figure out like what some of those parts meant. And actually you, yeah. there's also a vocabulary sort to a dictionary as well. Like um, they use a lot of different um, things. Like, so for example, one of the ones I noticed a lot was nado. Like, uh, they say nado, nado, yeah. very important, nado, hi. Right. So a lot of things like that, um, they're, they're incredibly useful for different contexts. So how do you learn for different contexts? Like, like you said, you can read the Shimbun about like, uh, what's going on in Afghanistan right now. And you might learn some like very specific language about that. How do you go about doing that? If it's not something that's easily accessible, like uh, a newspaper, like if you really want to learn, uh, for example, about, um, you know, real estate, if you're looking for an apartment or if you want to learn about, you know, how to like date in Japan, you want to learn like good words to be like, you know, kind of cool and suave or whatever. Or if you want to learn about specific business stuff, if you're going into a business meeting, how do you go about finding good content that you can, like you said, you can do in English or Japanese and you can kind of understand the context better? Hmm, that's a really interesting question. Mm. Um, I feel like, uh, okay, sorry, I, it's going to sound like I sort of disagree with you, which I don't really. Okay. But I feel <laughs> like what everybody misses is the proper base that they need to have before they study anything else. So before you study um, how to say a cool thing for a date or how want to study like botany or want to learn how to do, I don't know, cooking in Japanese or whatever, like a specific category, I think most of us internationals are messing up on the structure of the language most of the time. And when you mess up with the structure, the Japanese person listening to you is not going to take you seriously. Sorry to be so stark about it, but they're not going to take you seriously. They're going to see you as the kawaii gaikobujin friend. You know, you want them to take you seriously when you're talking about something serious. So um, it, it would be a good uh, example would be like on the first meeting uh, with any kind of Japanese person, I always recommend everybody err on the side of conservative. So if you're meeting someone for the first time, you would wear a dark blue suit with a tie that is not red with a white shirt and nicely shined black shoes. So you err on the side of conservative. If everybody else on the Japanese side shows up in an Aloha shirt or whatever, it's still fine because you are going to be taken seriously and seen as the one who did the proper thing. But if everybody else is in a dark blue suit and you show up in an Aloha shirt, that totally takes away your um, credibility in Japan, right? So in Japan, the, the katachi, right? The, the, the shape of something is so important. The, the structure is so important that I think most of us are messing up on the structure. So we're trying so hard to learn something we want to learn when we're forgetting about the fundamental structure that needs to be learned. Can I give you an example? Yes, please. So like everybody receives things in the mail, probably, you know, in Japanese, like something in the mail in Japanese. Okay. 
You could read that out loud. But if you're doing my thing about every morning you're reading something you're familiar, whether it's a newspaper, could be a real estate newspaper. If you're interested in real estate, that's also fine. What I'm talking about is the structure, the, the word that you said earlier, nado. You have to know nado if you want to survive in Japan, anything over three years, especially if you want to work here. So what you would do is if you're doing that everyday practice, right? When you do get something in the mail uh, that's all written in Japanese, it won't scare you because you've already, you've already are practicing every morning. You might not be able to read everything on it. But for instance, okay, the, the thing I'm showing you is a letter. And from the second line down, it uses the word sate with a comma after it. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably bet you that most everybody listening to this podcast doesn't use sate in their emails or their speech or anything like that. But sate, is, sate with a comma is absolutely essential to Japanese language structure for business, for anything. So when you're practicing that morning thing, it might not be specifically what you want to learn about, but what you're learning is the structure of how it should be said. And then you put the words that you want in there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. So it really is about recognizing, like, and seeing it enough times to sort of recognize a general structure. Even if, even if you're not necessarily like doing it to study like you're not looking up the word sate or something and trying to figure out what does that mean how do i use it and look at and and i found this happened a lot with me early on was that i would try and figure out what does this mean in english and often in japanese the words don't really have that much connection to what we would say in english so you so i think one of the best examples that i often uh tell to japanese people is trying to translate otsukare sama into english Uh doesn't make any sense not because no. the word not because you can't translate it like you know it's like thank you for working hard or like you know oh you look tired because you've been working so hard like that's the kind of way it sounds but in english we would never say that kind of thing it doesn't ha- it doesn't yeah. have any context in english so yeah i explain to japanese people when they're like you know oh mr maritz or charlie you know when they're talking like as to me as a teacher they're like how do i say otsukare sama or how do i say like yoroshiku nagaishimasu in english i'm like well you can't you just can't you have to find yeah. different ways to express those kind of feelings if you want to or yeah. express them in a way that's culturally relevant to to someone in english or in japanese like whichever way you're moving right and i think that um the the way that you address people in japan You know, all of us have to learn the Japanese style. So without understanding the fundamental structure of things, when you're in a conversation sort of situation, you won't be able to pick out the differences that you hadn't noticed before. For instance, if you saw somebody in the morning and you leave and you go to lunch and you come back, you will not say konnichiwa to that person again the second time in the day. Mm -hmm. You say tadaima or domo or do or something like that. So... If you're, if you aren't doing your daily practice of, um, how Japanese is spoken by reading it out loud, um, there's a lot of things that would just go right over your head that you won't notice on a daily basis. You will pick up so much more if you're every day, uh, reading something, newspaper, whatever is really good. And also you'll be able to pick up the Japanese news a lot better when you listen to the news on TV at night. Um, I always recommend that you definitely watch uh, News 7 at night on NHK. 
not really for the Japanese uh, study, although that helps, but that's the news show that everyone in Japan is watching. So everyone that you're interacting with in Japan is watching that at 7 p.m. at night. So you can share the same information that your Japanese colleagues have by watching that show. Yeah, I often find myself like a little bit left out of things when I, because I, <laughs> I don't, I don't even watch the news in English. You know, I'm, I'm not a big, a big news hawk. I do listen to a few podcasts and stuff. That's uh-huh. usually where I pick up um, my information. But when it comes to, you know, stuff in Japan, like, I don't know, I, I, I'm not even up on things like when there's a typhoon coming. Like I, my friends are always like, there's a typhoon coming this weekend. I'm like, oh, really? And I didn't know. And I had plans or something and I have to cancel them. <laughs> So where do you get your information on Japan then? Like your daily information on Japan? Um, for me, I usually get it by osmosis. I think a lot of people do. Like, um, especially, you know, when I was working at, uh, at an international school um, earlier this year, I would find that a lot of people who I worked with would have that information. They would just kind of share like, oh, did you see about this? And so I would, if it was important enough for people to mention, then I would get it. But like a lot of little things would go completely past me by. Um, so I think that's... I don't know, maybe for me, I generally don't like to pay too much attention to news anyway, because it usually just, it's things that I can't do anything about and it stresses me out. Um, But if it's something that you're really interested in, I think it's good to listen to. And I I think though that the reason why, you know, because Japan is very homogeneous, right? Mm -hmm. So literally everyone in Japan is watching the 7 p.m. news on NHK1. So the very fact that all your neighbors and everybody you work with is watching that show it would be really good for you to be up to date on what they're up to date on. Mm-hmm. So you're able to, when they start talking about Kansenshasu, is growing in Tokyo. You would be able to catch ah, I know what that means because I saw it on NHK the other night, you know, right. and they, and it's not difficult Japanese because they're speaking to all the grandmas and grandpas in Japan too. So the Japanese is not that hard. Right. And you all get a little bit of weather and you get a little bit of something and yeah. you know what is on the mind of Japanese people. It's only 30 minutes. I totally recommend that one. Okay. And they often put, um, one of the things that's really helpful is they almost always have subtitles on the screen. Exactly. Um, so, yes. and, and it's not even just subtitles, like subtitles, like animated subtitles that like really put it right in your face. So you can yeah. see the kanji while you're listening to what they're saying about it. So that's, I find that really helpful as well. Like I, I don't own a TV anymore, but when I used to have the TV on in the morning in the previous place I lived, that was really, uh, very useful. You can actually get the NHK news on your smartphone now. It's like mm. an on-demand kind of thing. I have NHK news on my smartphone. But does that mean does that mean when the NHK guy comes by your house, you actually have to give them the money? Because uh, ah. I'm always like avoiding those guys. <laughs> ah, um, I I think that that's a choice. What you want to do, you could watch it on internet. I'm sure on YouTube. Yeah. But um, all I'm saying is that like when we used to remember the days when we used to read newspapers. Remember that. Yeah, I, I, uh, my generation, I kind of just caught the end, the tail end of that. Yeah, my, um, my mentor is Oisan, who built the company Recruit. He would make it a rule that every single person in the company has to read the Nikkei Shimbun every morning. Wow. And the reason, the reason was not just so that you would understand what's going on in Japan. It was because every other Japanese boss, your boss, is reading that every morning. So in order to stay on the same wavelength as 98% of the people in Japan, it's absolutely imperative that you read that Nikkei Shimbun. That's what he told me. Wow. And I feel the same way about the 7 p.m. news. Everybody in Japan is watching that. So if you want to stay 
on par and like have a good feel for what's going on in Japan, watching that every day is really important. Yeah. Um, I could talk to you about this stuff forever, Ruthie. You, you've been absolutely <laughs> fascinating to talk to and you, you seem to know like so much about uh, Japan and the culture and everything. But um, I want to call it here, but let's definitely go get coffee sometime. Where can people find you if they want to find out more about what you do and your, your work? Yeah, well, um, basically my uh, tagline is connecting Japanese content with international curiosity. That's what my company does. So whether it's um, tourists, whether it's people like us living in Japan, uh, whether it's um, stu students studying here in Japan, what I try to do is tell the story of Japanese content, whether it's um, Sony Bank, which has this English online banking service that I consult on, or it's Kochi Prefecture, and we talk all about the beauty of Kochi Prefecture and what would be attractive to families and things like that. Um, uh, we do consulting. We try to tell the story of Japan in an in attractive way so that people would want to use that service or um, at least look into it. So um, you can find my company at jarmaninternational.com. So jarman-international.com. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you.